Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, we are approaching a text of scripture this morning that I love to preach. And I think it's uh, one of these texts that we see in 1 Corinthians that hopefully will leave all of us not only challenged but encouraged. And uh, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, um, please listen to what the text of scripture has to say today. Uh, of the great uh, sacrifice that has been made and the life that is available through Christ. I remember as a teenager and listening on the radio sometimes when my parents would have the radio on after coming to know the Lord, there was a preacher that preached on the radio named Oliver Green. Uh, Some of you might know that name, but he would always pray uh, before he would preach, and he would pray this. He would pray, Lord, save the soul that is nearest hell. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is my prayer this morning, is that not only as the church, as believers, we would be stirred today to obedience, challenged and encouraged, but for anyone in this room today that might not know Christ as Savior, uh, that today you would know him, and you would know what it means to have forgiveness of your sins and to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So let's pray together as we approach this great text this morning. Father, we are thankful for your grace and your love. And we're thankful, Lord, for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your grace, for your mercy, and God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that we as your church, as the body of Christ, would be stirred to obedience, Lord, stirred to proclaim that truth. And I pray for anyone in this room that might not know Christ as Savior, that the Spirit of God would open their eyes and open their hearts, their minds, to the truth of the gospel today, that they might be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 17, page 958 in your pew Bible. If you follow along there, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, pick up in verse 17. Paul's writing and he says... But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you have come together, or when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, verses 17 through 34, really, there's three different messages that could be preached in this text. And even within those three messages, there's additional messages that could be preached uh, just within this text. Paul begins in verses 17 through 22, not by commending the church. If you remember last week, he began that section of scripture by commending them because they were adhering to the teaching and proclamation of the word that Paul had given to them. But then in practice, they were struggling. And so here Paul says, listen, he makes a transition out of the previous section by saying, now in the follow instructions, I have no commendation for you. I am not here to commend you in any way because you're doing things that are not right. Namely, in verses 17 through 22, he addresses the reality of dissension and disunity. He, he, he directly uh, challenges them that they're not unified in their coming together. Uh, that there's separation that's taking place. And there's those that have more than enough and those that have nothing. And there's almost a shaming that was going on within the church. Even when they would gather together. Even when they would come together and should be unified around the message of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. And he was saying, I, I have no commendation for you. And really verses 17 to 22 could be an entire message. But Paul tells them, I have nothing to commend you for. You're coming together as a church. There's divisions there. You are supposed to be a family, and yet what's being portrayed is division, divisiveness. And sadly, that's the case many times in church, isn't it? I was just talking to my daughters over the weekend, a couple of them, because they were like at odds with each other, just light stuff. And I'm like, you're sisters. And I thought, like, that's, I guess, what sisters do, though, like, and, and brothers do. But it's so pleasant when everybody is together unified, isn't it? Isn't it pleasant that way? I mean, I think back to when I was a kid, and my, I have two sisters, and, and there would always be a ganging up. I'll admit it now. I wouldn't admit it then that my younger sister and I would gang up on my older sister, and we would, you know, just get sides together against her. And now I look back on it. I really don't feel bad, but I look back on it, <laughs> and I remember that that happened, <laughs> That did happen, and if she's listening, it happened. I know, Jess, I know it happened, but I'm not apologizing. <laughs> but here Paul's saying, listen, you're coming together as a, as a church, as those that have been redeemed, as those that belong to Jesus, and you're called by the same name, and you're to be unified around the gospel and around Christ, and there's divisions among you, and some are going hungry, and others are being overfed, and some have nothing, and some have all that they need and more, and you're not caring for one another, and you're not ministering to one another, and you're not unified in what you're doing. And he says, shall I commend you on this? No, I will not. You humiliate those who have nothing, you despise the church of God. And, and Paul's wanting to bring them to a point of unity. And it's important because he's wanting them to, bring to, to be brought to a point of unity around something that's so necessary and important for the church. And that's the Lord's table. It's communion. And really, we want to really focus in on verses 23 to 32 in particular this morning as we look at the Lord's table, as we look at this, this commandment on the part of Christ, this ordinance on the part of Christ for the church of the Lord's table and communion. And there's a lot of confusion in some circles around what the Lord's table actually is, what it represents, what it does. And so we hope to clarify some of that for, uh, for us this morning. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give us four observations and four takeaways. 
Four observations from the passage and then four takeaways. We've already just briefly addressed verses 17 to 22 in a sense that Paul's telling them there's no commendation for you here because you're disunified, you're arguing, you're disputing, you're not caring for one another, and you're supposed to come together in a unified way around this table. But as we pick up in verses 22 or 23 all the way through the end of the chapter, really want to make four observations and give four takeaways. Observation number one, the Lord's table is a time of remembrance. It's a time of remembrance. And this is vitally important for the believer in Jesus Christ. If you look at this passage, this text, verses 23, 24, 25, 26, you have this time of remembrance that's emphasized. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. Paul's talking about something that Christ has directly given to him, and he's directly received this revelation from the Lord. Those disciples of Christ that were present in an upper room would have known this to happen, and now Paul's delivering it to them. It's a remembering this work. It's remembering this night that Christ instituted this. Verse 24, he talks about the, the, the body, and he says, do this in a remembrance of me. Verse 25, talking about the cup, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death, past tense, the death of the Lord until he comes. This is a time of remembrance. And it's important for us to remember. I, I, a number of months ago, I was looking for something, and we had like these tubs in the basement that I was looking through, and I came across a tub of my childhood stuff that I kept. And when I got married, and I had all kinds of things at my, my parents' house, and we kind of cleared things out, there was one tub of things that I kept that were meaningful from when I was a kid. And it had been, I don't know how long since I pulled that out. And I opened that up, and I looked inside of it. And as I opened it up and looked inside, first of all, when you open it up, you know how when you have old things that have been packed, like it smells old? And I'm not talking about like 100 years ago, but I'm thinking like, okay, I opened this thing up, and one of the things that I smelled right away was a leather baseball glove that I had in that, in that tub. You know that smell? And I opened it up, and it was my Little League baseball glove that I kept. And it, and it was there. And I, it immediately made me remember, like playing Little League baseball. I have my first... Little League hit baseball that, that was there that my dad wrote on it. Boo's first Little League baseball hit, okay? It's my nickname. I've told you that before. Appreciate the lack of laughter on that. And it had the date, and it had the pitcher that I hit it off of. And it actually was an RBI single, and so I batted a run in when I did it. It was my first ever Little League hit, and I had that baseball. And I, I saw it, and I'm holding it, and I kind of smiled, and I'm looking at it, and I'm remembering that. I had um, this Lone Ranger. How many of you guys know who the Lone Ranger is? Anybody know who that is? Lone Ranger, Tonto. I don't know. I don't know. Some of the younger people in the audience are like, who? But he's a guy that had that, that white cowboy hat and that white outfit. You know who I'm talking about and the mask. And when I was a kid, I used to love the Lone Ranger. And I have this, it's broken because it was plastic, but this broken Lone Ranger hat, white hat that was there, taking me back like way far. I have old baseball pennants that I had hung up in my, in my room as a kid that were in there. All kinds of things from when I was a kid. And immediately when I opened it up and I, I was looking at that and, and holding that glove and holding that baseball, it immediately brought me back. You know what I'm talking about when you do that. And here when we approach the Lord's table, what Paul's reminding them and what Christ was instituting is he's saying, listen, as often as you do it, you're remembering and proclaiming what it is that I have done for you. And so when the church comes together and we have the elements of the cup and the bread and we take these elements, it's not 
for no reason that we take these and hold these. It's not for no reason that, that these are what are provided for us because it was that first night that Jesus instituted this with his disciples that he would break bread and give it to them and they would recall and remember his statement that this is my body which is broken for you. And they would remember him passing that cup saying this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. Paul draws their attention back to that night. And isn't it interesting, I, I, I was thinking about this as in preparation for this in a way that I really never truly stopped and contemplated this. But look at how he refers to that. He says, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. And everyone would have knew immediately what he was talking about. But isn't it interesting that as we recall back to the remembrance of the Lord's table, the way they would have remembered it was the night he was betrayed. That very night. And what an appropriate reminder. Because it was because of our sin. Our betrayal. Literally our hatred of God as enemies of God. Christ had to die. As the sacrifice for our sin. It was that night he was betrayed when Judas, hours later, one of the 12 disciples that was with Jesus, that traveled with Jesus, that observed and saw his miracles and teaching that he would betray him. It would be just hours later that his disciples, those who followed him so closely and loved him dearly, would scatter to leave him alone as he was taken into custody. It was that night that so many of his own people that had followed and just prior to this would be proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that now would turn their backs on him and be yelling out with the crowd to crucify him. Paul brings back to memory that night in which he was betrayed. And I can't help but think as we bring back our memory to that and allow that to resonate in our hearts and minds that it would remember or we would remember that we were in a position of absolute need and hopelessness before God without Christ. It was the night on which he was betrayed. He brings them back there. Now, I think this is important as we talk about remembering the Lord's table and Remembering that moment in that knife because there's belief in regards to the Lord's table on the part of some that partaking of it brings with it some sort of inherited or earned grace or favor in God's sight. There's belief in some religious practices that in the blessing of the elements of the Lord's table, the bread and the cup, that these elements actually become the physical body and blood of Jesus and that by taking it as his actual physical body and blood, we're receiving some sort of forgiveness and grace by consuming them. And so it's necessary again and again and again to receive these elements because we need that grace and that mercy and we're literally taking in the body and blood of Jesus as though Christ has sacrificed again and again and again. But Paul makes it abundantly clear here, and Jesus made it abundantly clear, that this table is not the actual work of Christ, nor is it a work that provides forgiveness or grace, but it is a symbol or representation of the work of Christ. That's why we do this in remembrance of what Christ did. If this was the actual work of Jesus that again is being accomplished as though he's dying again and sacrificed again and we're earning grace and favor, we're doing nothing in remembrance, we're doing it in hopes of earning. And that's not what this table is. Paul makes it abundantly clear. Jesus made it abundantly clear that this is not the actual work 
nor is it a work that provides forgiveness of grace today as we partake of it. It's a symbol or representation. It's a reminder of that work. Yes, Jesus' body was broken, bruised, and sacrificed on our behalf. Yes, his blood was shed on our behalf. Yes, Christ took upon himself the wrath of Almighty God on our behalf. That work is finished, though. That work is done. The sacrifice has been provided. The debt has already been paid. Our salvation is already secure. This is what this table reminds us of. This is what the table brings back to us. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time to remember that this is, verse 24, my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a time to remember the blood that was shed. Verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This work is finished. And this morning, morning as believers in Christ, that is a reason to celebrate that the work is done. And if you're here today and you don't have Christ as your Savior and you are working and working and working and trying to earn and earn and earn and hoping and hoping and hoping that you can do enough, you can quit working because Christ has done it for you. It's finished. And as we come to this table and as we come to this reminder, this remembering of what Christ has done, Let us not insert ourselves to be the hero here. Christ is the hero. It's not our work. It's his work. It's not anything we do. It's what he has done. No merit of righteousness or grace because of our works, but because of the work that he has accomplished. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what Jesus has done. So when Paul says, verse 23, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, this is my blood, which is for you. When we remember this and we proclaim this, we're proclaiming and remembering the finished work of Jesus. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, or you're not sure that you know him, or you're not sure what that's even all about, please don't miss what the Apostle Paul says here, but also what he just said in Romans 5. He says, Christ died for the ungodly, which is all of us apart from him. He says it wasn't for the pure, the perfect, the holy, the put together, the good person that Jesus died for. No, he died for sinners. For the ones who rebelled against God, the ones who have done evil, the ones who fall short, which is all of us. Maybe you've thought it in your mind today. Maybe you've thought it in the past when you've heard of the gospel of Jesus. I'm just not good enough for God. I'm not good enough to be God's child. I've done so many things that have been wrong in my life. I have failed so many times. I'm certainly not good in the eyes of God. You're correct, you're right, neither am I, neither is anyone. But you precisely fit the description of those for whom Jesus died. You precisely fit the description of the ones that needed Jesus, which is all of us, and the one that Christ has provided a way of escape for, through faith and trust in him. We believe as a church, because the scriptures teach it, that there is no one, no one, that is impossible for our God to save. Jesus Christ died for us. He died for you. And there's forgiveness through his name. We believe that.
Church, it's a good reminder for us all today, isn't it? That the one who we might look down on or argue against or preach against or even hide bitterness or hatred in our heart against for their beliefs, their practices, or their choices. That the one who's a hater of God, who's rebellious against God, who would even mock and make fun of our Savior and his word, and that might lead us to anger, discouragement, or resentment, that those who in word and action are the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that whole camp, that list, that group once included you and I, that we were guilty, we were dead, and we were in need of the Savior. And that's why Jesus died. That's why he sacrificed himself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were once the enemies of God, haters of God, rebellious, lost, evil, and dead. And then God intervened in our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in Romans 5 to say, Since therefore you have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from him from the wrath of, from, by him from the wrath to come? Through this sacrifice of Christ that we remember in the Lord's table, we are saved from the wrath that is to come. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you can be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. That's what Christ has done. And today we remember as we go to the Lord's table. The work of Jesus is life transforming, it's impactful, and we must never forget it. So let me give a first takeaway here. The work of Christ should be consistently at the forefront of our hearts and minds. We remember what Jesus has done. In church, the work of Christ should be at the forefront of our hearts and our minds. Let us not forget the work that Christ has done. Not just as we come together to gather to partake of the Lord's table in communion, but might we on a daily, hour by hour, moment by moment basis as we walk through this life and engage with others, remember the work of Christ. Not only what he has accomplished for you and I, but what he has accomplished for anyone that would call upon his name for salvation. That there's grace and there's forgiveness. Second observation, not only a time of remembrance, but the Lord's table is a time of examination. It's a time in examination. Verses 27 to 32 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul says here, listen, when you partake of the Lord's table, it should be a time of examination. It's for the believer in Christ that is rightly discerning the body and blood of the Lord, the one that knows Christ as Savior, but it's also for the one who is in fellowship with him and walking with him. It says, let a person examine himself so he's not taking an unworthy way. Uh, this is a, uh, an examination that is similar to what you see in the psalmist when he says, Lord, search me, know my heart, try my thoughts, and see if there's any evil in me. What comes with this examination, a time of examination, comes repentance and confession of sin and turning from sin. 
It's a time of looking and recognizing. It's a detailed cleaning. It's an asking the Spirit of God to look at our lives and reveal to us what we are missing, what we're not seeing, what's hindering our fellowship with him. This is a table for the believer that knows Christ. And it's also a table for the believer that is examining himself and seeing, am I in fellowship with Christ? I remember when I was a kid in the summertime, from the time my eyes opened to the time it was time to go to bed at night, I wanted to be outside playing wiffle ball, playing football, riding my bike, doing whatever it was outside. And from the moment I got up until the moment I went to bed at night, it's what I wanted to do. But I remember just the, the, the words of my mom before I would want to go outside. She would ask before I would go outside if my room was cleaned. That's what you would be asked. Before you're going to go outside, you need to clean your room. And on any given day in the summer, I don't know how it happened because I always had to clean it up. My room would look like a bomb went off. There was stuff just everywhere. Clothes on the floor, uh, dirty socks from like being out the day before playing football and getting all muddy. Um, you know, I would have just like, you know, whatever all over the place. And I remember getting up and looking and be like, man, I got to clean all this up before I go outside. And so here's what I would do. I had three great spots to throw everything. I could throw everything in my closet. And I had two closet doors that when they shut... They were the ones that were like accordion-like doors that when you shut it, you'd get it shut. But if something was there, they would kind of prop open if it was like not, you know. But I would shove everything in the closet and try to shut it all in there and shut the doors. And if the doors would stay shut, I was great. Or I would throw everything under my bed. I would try to fit everything under my bed, just shove everything under my bed. And so that it was just out of sight, out of mind. Or I would try to, like with dirty clothes, put them under my, my sheets and my blankets and so I'd make my bed and just shove everything up there. And if you're looking as a kid, you look at it and you're like, it looks like a body's under there, but I think it will work, right? Because everything's shoved under that. And so it would be one thing if my, my mom would ask me, did you clean your room? And I'd be like, yep, it's clean. And I would take off. But there would be certain times where I would say, yeah, it's clean. And she would come in and inspect. And it wasn't like even like a white glove inspection. It was just an eye test. And all it took for her to walk in that room was look and be able to tell me and say, what's under your covers here? Something kind of hanging out under the bed that would draw her attention and she would look underneath because I'd have my blanket over the edge of the bed so you couldn't see underneath it. Or that door in my closet was just propped open a little bit. You could walk over the door and open it up and everything would just fall out. There was an examination. This is what communion does, right? This is what we're supposed to do when we come to the Lord's table. We're supposed to come to the Lord's table, and we're not asking for our eyes to be on if we're in fellowship with the Lord. We're asking the Lord to examine us. We're going to him and asking him to examine. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's going to the Lord and saying, Lord, show me. Show me. Is there sin in my life? Is something breaking the fellowship that I have with you? What is present in my life that needs to be confessed, that I need to repent of, that I need to turn from? This is a celebration, but it's also a time of examination. It's for those that know Christ as Savior, and it's for those that are walking in fellowship with him. When he says in verses 30 to 32, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That can sound confusing, but here's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, you go to the Lord and ask the Lord to examine you. And if there's sin 
Confess it, repent of it, turn from it, because when we don't do that, when we are not walking in a worthy way, when we're in disobedience to God, when we're not in fellowship with God, when we come to the Lord's table and we partake in an unworthy manner, he says in this passage that some are weak and some are ill and some have died. The correcting hand of God has come for them. And he says if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Don't misunderstand the judgment he's talking about there. Paul's talking about the correcting hand of a loving heavenly father towards his children here. He says, if you would examine yourself and you would confess and forsake and repent of sin and you would walk in fellowship with God and partake in a worthy manner, you're asking God to show you. And he says, if you would judge or we would judge ourselves more harshly or more severely, if we would really truly look and be honest about the sin that is in our life and confess and forsake and repent, there'd be no need for the correcting hand of God to come. There'd be no need for the judgment of God as it relates to correction to come into our lives as believers in Christ. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God is correcting and disciplining us to bring us to a point of right relationship with him as his children. But he says, this is why some are sick and some are ill and some have fallen asleep. Listen, not all sickness is because we're being disobedient to God. And not all death is because, as it relates to the death of um, loved ones or individuals or individuals in our lives, is because of our personal disobedience or sin. But he says in this passage that this is why sometimes there is sickness, there is illness, and even death, weakness because of the sin that is left unrepented of and unconfessed because of disobedience as children of God. And God as a loving heavenly father is going to discipline us as his children. And one way that happens is through sickness, through physical trials and ailments. And ultimately could even be in death. And he says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Eat in a worthy way that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're walking in obedience to him, that you know him, that you're in fellowship with him, because if not, the correcting hand of God will come. Some are sick, some are weak, and some have died. God takes this seriously. So we approach the Lord's table as a time of remembrance, but also as a time of examination. And and this was really important because remember the context that Paul's writing in. Paul's writing in the context of writing to a church and believers that as he began this section, he told them, I can't commend you in this because there's not unity, there's dissension. I can't commend you in this because you're acting selfishly, pridefully, arrogantly. Examine yourself and prove that you are in the faith and that you're following him. Here's a second takeaway for us. Confession and repentance should be regularly exercised in our lives. The work of Christ should consistently, constantly be in our hearts and minds and and confession and repentance should be regularly exercised in our lives as believers. That we would be quick to confess when we sin against God. That we'd be quick to turn, to repent and turn the other direction from our sin. Can't we be guilty as believers sometimes of trying to shove everything under the covers, everything in the closet, everything under the bed, hoping no one sees and no one knows? But God can clearly see and clearly know. And so we express to God a heart of repentance and confession. Third observation, the Lord's table is a time of reception. It's a time of reception. When you revisit verses 23 to 26, where Paul again institutes this to the church as Christ did, This is my body, which is for you, he says. 
This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I receive, verse 23, from the Lord what I delivered to you. Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a time of reception. It's a time of, another way we can put this, is a time of participation by the body of Christ. If we believe in the finished work of Jesus, if we're trusting in the finished work of Christ, if we belong to him, this should be a part of what we do. I'm not a big birthday cake eater. Not a big cake eater, okay? Some cake I like, some cake I don't. But if my wife bakes a cake for a birthday party, she bakes a cake and always looks great. She does an amazing job. All of her food is amazing that she cooks. All of the stuff's good. It's just I'm not a big cake eater. And so if we have a birthday party and she makes this cake and she puts it and we sing and the candles are blown out, I know that my wife is probably watching to see if I'm going to have a piece of that birthday cake she made. Because it's, it's like confirmation, okay? <laughs> that like, and so as the night goes on and everybody's done, she'll normally swing back to me and be like, oh, so did you have a piece of cake? That's what she asks. And it's like triumphant husband, I like to be like, yes, I did. It was fantastic cake, you know, and I feel like I get a badge. Because I'm not a big cake eater. But my eating what she baked is participation not only in the celebration, but also acknowledging to her, like, yeah, I wanted to eat what you made, and, I, and I'm participating in it. I'm celebrating with everybody else. Have you ever been to a birthday party where you're like, hey, who wants birthday cake, and no one takes any cake? <laughs> what a downer, right? We sing happy birthday to you. Everybody's singing. Everybody claps. The candles are blown out. Everybody's clapping. All right, who wants cake? Not me, and everybody clears out. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Because we're celebrating, we're participating together. And here's the thing I think sometimes can be missed. Sometimes a believer can think, I don't need to do that. Yes, you do. If you belong to Christ, if you believe in the finished work of Jesus, you are commanded, I am commanded by Christ to do this in remembrance of him. This is not an option. It's a time of reception. It's a time of participation. There's an actual receiving of the elements, a participating in the celebration. It wasn't just for the elites. It wasn't just for people of means. It was not for a chosen few. It was for the church, for the bride of Christ. We're commanded to do it, and it would be disobedient not to. When Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. When he said, this is the cup, which is for you. When he said, do this in remembrance of me, for you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Who is he speaking to? Well, not only directly to the disciples that were present with him in that upper room, but now we see it translated even to the church that he's talking to the believer in Christ that has been made alive through his work, that we do this in remembrance of what Christ has done, that we collectively as the church, individually as believers, proclaim that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. He's returning. And so there's participation that must take place here. So here's takeaway number three. The Lord's Supper should be participated in by every believer who is walking in fellowship with Christ until he returns. We will do this again and again and again and again because God has commanded us to until he returns. And he is returning. And so what we're doing here, this is a temporary thing. Participating in the Lord's table, we're remembering the finished work of Christ by faith, what he's done, but there is coming a day when we will have our faith made sight. 
And until that day, we remember and we participate 